Welcome back, friends, nerds, librarians, and all you ilk to episode 42 of the SS Librarianship Podcast. <laughs> I love saying 42. We're inching ever closer to 50 episodes. Yes, we are. And also yeah. very close to like a one year anniversary, which is pretty awesome. So there will be more on that as it develops. <laughs> um, today, it was a really fun episode. We got yeah. to chat with an old friend we hadn't talked to in a while. Totally. Yeah, so uh, Jason Korf, who has previously been on board to talk about video games in libraries. Am I right? I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, is on board today, uh, both for MindGrapes and to talk to us about ALA. So he went to the big convention in Vegas, and he kind of gives us a little review of some of the cool things that he saw and did, and um, some celebrities that were there, and some cool free <laughs> swag and books, and the Paizo booth, and it sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounded like it was a really, really cool time. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess we should the jump only in, huh? we should. The only thing I'd like to mention is uh, this is one of our. I think this is the first remote episode uh, that we've ever put out. So if you notice a little difference in the sound quality, please bear with us. Uh, we it's the first one we've done not in the same room. Yeah, well, Correct. I guess without you know without each person on each end having a. I was going to say professional mic, but that's not exactly yeah. the case. But anyhow, yeah. So we, we think the sound quality is still pretty good, but you may notice yeah. that it's a little different than usual. But yeah. So I guess then with that only that little notice, I guess we should maybe get this one started. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I'm Ali Sullivan and there is an art, it says, or rather a knack to flying. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. <laughs> and I'm Sam Mills. And there is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced with something even more bizarre and inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. <laughs> so, Allie, what's on your mind, Grapes, this week after our nice long weekend week off? Well, in, uh, in true, uh, you know, this podcast fashion, uh, I'm talking about a book that's been very popular, but it's been popular for a long, long time, and I'm just now getting around to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I finally uh, got off the holds list and uh, got my hands on Divergent. <laughs> oh. So, um, so yeah, I, I read Divergent and uh, I found it really interesting. I mean, it definitely has some uh, marks of a young author's first attempt kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, but you know, I thought it had some really interesting elements, and and I mean, when you when you bring up Divergent, the first thing you think of is well, it's kind of like the Hunger Games, right? They're all sort of in this same uh, generation of post-apocalyptic YA fiction, and like there are some things I think that they did do better than uh, than the Hunger Games. Like really? I actually, yeah, there are a few things I think they did better. Um, I think some of their male characters are a little better fleshed out than than the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. Um, and she does do some interesting things. But um, but yeah, and like the I think that the the protagonists, you know, the female 17 year old protagonist thing is kind of actually I don't like one of them more than the other. Um, I think that they have really interesting things going on. They um, are actually pretty different from each other, those two characters. Like they are, Katniss yeah. Katniss in The Hunger Games and Triss in uh, Divergent. Yeah, like they're they're very different people. And like I, I do appreciate that. And uh, 
Um, and like they're they're kind of like even though they're different, like I don't like one of them better than the other. I think that they're both sort of written with the same amount of care and uh, stuff like that. So um, the only thing that I that I kind of noticed was uh, the fact that um, even though it's a book that you know, is written by a young woman and it's being, I mean, it's kind of being aimed at a young female audience. Um, I mean, Triss is the only female character that's really well fleshed out. Yeah. Uh, could you give me a brief rundown of Divergent? Oh, sure. I've only yeah, read yeah. The Hunger Games. Yeah. So the concept behind Divergent is, um, you know, so it's post-apocalyptic Chicago mm-hmm. And um, there's been some kind of, I don't know if it's an economic event or a cataclysmic event, but either way, um, society has divided itself into, um, ah, sorry, five different sort of uh, sets to the community that make make up the whole community. And um, the way you go into these different uh, factions, right? Yeah, different factions mm. is um, it's based around some kind of um, like personality traits. So okay. the five like a, a coming of age ritual too. It's been a while yeah. since I've read it now. Yeah. So it was, yeah. When you turn 16, you do this weird coming of age ritual where you choose your faction and you've been raised inside of one faction. And, um, you know, when kids choose to go to another faction, it's really kind of severing yourself off from the life you had before. Mm. I think there's some opportunity to see your family again, but it's not very regular. Um, and so the the five factions are based on sort of personality traits or or things they do for the community. So there's the um, abnegation faction, which are like the charitable people. Uh, there's um, amity, which are the sort of like kindness and farming stuff. Um, candor, which are honest, candors never lie kind of idea. Uh, there's the erudite, which are, you know, like the scholars, the scientists. And then there's the dauntless who are, you know, the, the strong and, uh, reckless, um, but they're like kind of protectors. Like they, they do the physical kind of stuff. So it, uh, follows a, a girl who's been raised in abnegation, but has never really felt at home there. Um, people in abnegation are supposed to constantly have, um, be constantly selfless, you know, like they are supposed to give everything they have. Oh, and there's also the, the factionless, which is like, so some people, if they get kicked out of a faction or, you know, don't choose a faction, they become factionless, which are basically hobos as far as I can see. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it sort of follows this girl raised in abnegation, uh, never felt at home there, uh, takes this weird test to determine what faction she should go into. And it comes up with, um, inconclusive results, which means she is divergent, um, which is kind of a, a dirty word because it means that you don't kind of don't belong anywhere. Well, and you're and seen as like a threat to the system right yeah you're seen as a threat to the system because everyone is supposed to be in these you know very very nicely shaped boxes um and so they kind of hide her a little bit and she actually joins the dauntless which um so when she chooses her faction she chooses dauntless so it's um it's really interesting and uh yeah and so it's sort of about her learning, you know, more about the terrible things that are happening in the community. And then they kind of have to take it down from the inside, um, which is cool. I've only read the first book. I'm still like, you know, number 408 on the wait list for the second in the series. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I'll read that one, you know, in six months or so. <laughs> but, um, that was me. but 
it, it is pretty neat. And, you know, it's 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 not uh, I, I've heard some people say because it was written by Veronica Roth when she was, what, like 22, 20, I don't know, maybe, um, you know, very young kind of author. And uh, I have a lot of people think like, oh, she's a terrible writer. I'm like, you know what? She's no worse than Suzanne Collins. Like, you know, youth does not necessarily mean that you're not a good writer. Yeah, I mean, there were similar complaints about Patrick Rothfuss when you wrote some of his earlier stuff. And his early yeah. Ones. Yeah. Um, and so I thought it was, it was pretty good. Um, but just to go back to the sort of the point that I thought was, was interesting and, and Tris being a very well kind of fleshed out female character, she's kind of the only well fleshed out female character, um, in the series where we actually have several male characters who are very well fleshed out, you know? And I don't know if this is from that perspective of like, let's, let's give the girls like one of, they can choose whether they want to like this guy or this guy, you know, for these reasons. And I, and I don't really know what I wonder if it's also that it's sort of an easy device to lean back on when you want your female protagonist to stand out, to surround them by met with men. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, like there are some, like she does have female friends. There are important female characters. It's just that they're kind of one dimensional, um, at least at this point in the game. Um, I'm sure that as the books go on, we learn much more about these characters and some things have happened that are going to change relationships. So, uh, I'm hoping that, that the female characters get a little bit, uh, more fleshed out, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really good book, uh, your kind of standard YA fare. It's not the best thing I've ever read, but it's not the worst by any means. <laughs> so, you know, if you have, uh, I think I read it all in an afternoon. So, yeah, it's not too Thanks. bad. Yeah. Well, what about you, Jason? What have you been reading? I've been going through uh, critical essays on Lord Dunsany, <laughs> edited by S.T. Joshi. Okay, you're going to have oh, to unpack yeah. that for us. So, Lord Dunsany is my favorite author ever oh wow okay and i happen to pick this book up at ala from a publisher whose entire catalog was half off Hmm. it's like it is by far the nicest book i have ever owned yeah cool it was originally 80 (laughs) dollars yeah (laughs) so tell us about lord dunsany like tell us about his writing okay so um i have to give you his full name first just okay it's a Edward John Morton drafts Plunkett to the 18th Baron Dunsany. (laughs) So he's this Irish Lord who wrote a lot of stuff from the 1890s and early 1900s up to through his death in like the fifties. And he's credited with inspiring authors like Ursula Le Guin, HP Lovecraft and Tolkien Oh, wow. So, so he very, was like one of the very influential first fantasy writers. Hmm? He was like an early, early fantasy writer. Yes, he's a very early fantasist. Hmm. Okay. So he's written a lot of poetry and short novels and especially plays, both stage and radio. Hmm. He was much better known in the U.S. for his plays. Cool. Is he still oh, around or no? I'm guessing. No, 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 no. he died yeah. in the 50s. Okay. And the, the guy who, you said it was edited by S.T. Joshi? Yeah. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy, too. Um, I know mm-hmm. him because he also does a huge amount of Lovecraft scholarship. Um, yes. You know, so John, my, my husband, does Lovecraft for his work. And um, Joshi actually isn't uh, an academic. He, he doesn't have any academic credentials. He just, sorry? Some. He has some, sorry. 
<laughs> I'm getting I'm getting the peanut gallery over here. This is like when they talk about medicine and Sydney corrects them on my brother, my brother and me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yeah, he has a few literary crit credentials, but otherwise, uh, he just, you know, he just loves the stuff. And so he just write a, writes about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what's his take on Dunsany then, Jason? Or takes? Um, let's see. I haven't, so he only has one thing in this anthology or collection, but I haven't gotten that far yeah, yet. Okay. So it's in like the fifth chapter. I'm on the fourth. Hmm. So what's the rest of it been about? Um, some of them are things written by his contemporaries, so favorable or unfavorable impressions of his plays, um, personal interactions with him. He's apparently like very tall and imposing. Huh. He was an avid chess player and huntsman. He fought in World War One. He followed a very similar path with some people like uh, Tolkien in terms of like, what their life experiences were early on. Hmm. Like it's said that all Dunstany read at an early age was the King James Bible and North mythology, stuff like that. It's, uh, most people tend to say that his works have a certain richness and an inspirational quality. Others will harp on him not really contributing to the overall strength of like the Irish narrative. Mm. Oh, so he was dreaming of other worlds as opposed to writing about the Irish right. experience. Huh. That's that's such a funny idea because yeah, a lot of the a lot of the Irish writers kind of there is this expectation that they're going to be, you know, furthering the Irish cause or something like that, right? Yeah, like the the um, selection from Yates got kind of snippy about him. Yeah. <laughs> so There's at the time, was he like, was he popular at the time? The same way that people like Lewis to and Tolkien were? To a certain extent, more so in the U.S. Okay. Um, because he was also a member of the nobility, there's a certain sense that, like, any praise he got was because of him as a person rather than his writing. Right. Mm. Even though it wasn't necessarily true. And he yeah, was also an um, excellent um, supporter of the arts. He gave a lot of money to, for other folks to write or publish things. So what yeah. are what are what are some of your favorite works by uh, by the the Duke Earl guy? Sorry, <laughs> Dunsany. I like that. Yeah, it's my my favorite by far is a short novel called The King of Elfland's Daughter. Mm -hmm. I think I first read that in, in high school. I came across it randomly in a library. <laughs> it had one of those like very common like pre raphaelite kind of cover illustrations. Hmm. And what was it about? So there's a young man who is seeking a wife and ends up against all advice going past the fields we know into the, into Elfland where time has no sway mm -hmm. and actually kidnaps the king's daughter, Lyrazel, to become his wife. 
<laughs> is the king's daughter much of a character or no? Oh, yes. No, oh, she's good. definitely a character. But more in the vein of those like captive otherworldly women mm. in literature. Mm. Yeah. So she has she very much has that power, but it's as if she's biding her time and finds it vaguely amusing. Mm. I guess with the longer lifespan that elves traditionally have, that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But so she goes back with him. They have children and all that. And but then the king gets pissed off and kind of lonely, and so uses like his great spells to cause Elfland to rise up and flow over the town they go back to, sort of on the borderlands. Okay. The only bastions of like, sanity left are the church, essentially. Hmm. Where the priest is kind of haggardly holding services and keeping the fairy swarms at bay. <laughs> so how Invasion do the church and the elves get along when the elves appear? It's more like they just don't go inside. Hmm. Okay. So the town is kind of irritated by having all these fairies running around and knocking over things. <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind of like the undergrads uh, when they come back to campus in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really neat because I mean, if that was earlier than Tolkien, then yeah, a lot of people credit Tolkien with being one of the first people to sort of take a lot of elements of mythology and put them into like a modern novel, right? But that sounds like it was earlier. They were largely contemporaries. Hmm. Hmm. I guess if I'd lived through that time, I'd want either to go to another world or to have another world come into mine, right? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'm just poking through the uh, index now, looking forward to some of these other cool pieces did he have like a nemesis like is there anyone in there who just really really hated his stuff i mean there have been people in here that haven't appreciated his stuff a whole lot but i mean not to the point of saying that his work is totally valueless Hmm. it's more that they have a different agenda and so wished his works a different slant Mm. yeah which I was just going to say, in some ways, is is reminiscent of Tolkien as well. I mean, he was always so adamant that that there was no allegory, that Lord of the Rings was just Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. People always want to sort of graft, you know, environmentalism or, or liberalism or all sorts of other isms onto it. So I've gotten through the biographies and memoirs, some general things about his work, including one by Lovecraft, who really likes his stuff, though. And then a little bit into the fiction. So I haven't gotten to the plays or longer pieces on individual works or his influences and who's influenced. It sounds like a pretty good find, especially considering that he's like relatively obscure and you liked him and then you, you found that mm-hmm. randomly. I love when that happens. <laughs> yeah, this is one of the few recent publications about Dunsany. Hmm. I was quite surprised to find this. And there were two books, actually, at their display. The other one was a comprehensive bibliography of Dunsany's works. 
Wow. Which is not necessarily even a thing that gets published anymore in general, right? Bibliographies. Yeah. It's sort of a, well, we can do that in other more convenient ways now kind of thing. Hmm. Cool. Well, I might check out some of his stuff now just to see how it stands up to some of that same stuff in the period. Hmm. What about you, Sam? What have you been up to? Um, well, we're kind of coming full circle, I guess, because what I what I just finished reading is I think a bit closer to Divergent than to Dunsany. <laughs> but um, I just finished reading The Girl Who Would Be King by Kelly Thompson. Oh, yeah, uh, I it's about that an one. ebook. It's actually only available as an ebook because, and I didn't know this before I started reading it, uh, it was actually Kickstarter funded. So she had oh, this cool. idea for a book and she decided to ask people if they would pay for it and enough people wanted to that she was able to fund herself to write it. Oh, cool. Uh, so <clears throat> despite the sort of medieval sounding title, it's um, set in the present day. And it follows, um, for about the first half of the book, it follows these two girls independently of each other on like opposite sides of the states uh both growing up with sort of one is an orphan um because of an accident that happened when she was a child and she's been in a home uh for girls for i think close to 10 years um her older brother is out there somewhere but he's never come to find her so she's sort of you know got this fraught family past and then the other um, so that's Bonnie. And then the other one, Lola, uh, lives on the East Coast in the desert. And she, um, <laughs> we first meet her when she is in the process of drugging and killing her mother. Nice. <laughs> she's figured right. out that her mother has power, power that she's not using. She's basically an alcoholic who never leaves their trailer. And Lola has decided she's sick of it. She knows her mother has this potential and isn't using it. And she's been told enough about it to know that if her mother dies, it will probably transfer to her. She's also had a really rough upbringing <laughs> with this woman. And I think that's um, contributed a little to the fact that she's basically a sociopath. Mm -hmm. So she drives her mother's car off a cliff, jumps out at the last second, kills her, and the power transfers to her. And at about the same time, Bonnie is sort of coming of age and discovering that she herself also has power. And there's this early incident where she defends another girl in a home against a bully and sort of realizes that she's got these powers. Um, and then comes across some comic books and starts to read them and realizes, hey, maybe I'm one of these people. <laughs> and uh, So the first good half of the book just kind of follows their two paths in parallel. And... Um, and it's very clearly she's decided to tell the story of both a superhero's development and a supervillain's development. And so you get, you're inside each of their heads, you go back and forth, it's all in the first person. And uh, it's just fascinating. I mean, ordinarily, an author will choose to follow one, right? But she follows them yeah. both very much in, in um, balance with each other. And actually, I really found myself cheering for Lola, despite the fact that she's kind of a psychopath, because mm -hmm. she's just so... She's very, very insecure, but she's also very like, this is my power and I deserve it and I'm going to do whatever I want with it. And it's actually mm -hmm. kind of like really cathartic to read. Um, definitely really violent. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not sure if it's right. been marketed as a YA novel or not, but it's it's more violent in some ways, um, even mm -hmm. than something like The Hunger Games, especially when Lola is sort of um, dealing with other people, other criminals and so forth. But... Uh, it gets more into sort of the mythology of things later on. And she's, she talks in the, um, in the dedication about how she was very heavily inspired by Joss Whedon. Mm -hmm. And you can definitely see that, especially later on when Bonnie starts to learn more about where their power comes from. And when the two of them start to come together, 
there's this whole kind of, you know, long line of women in both of their families who've had this power and transferred it down to each other. Um, and the mythology of it adds some like interesting color to it, but it's also kind of, I don't know. It does seem like that's a trope that comes up more in stories about women, that mm. it's this power that you're born into or that you have thrust upon you as a child. Mm. You see fewer stories. Yeah. You see fewer stories of women sort of, I don't know, being bitten by radioactive spiders or deciding <laughs> to go out on their own and be vigilantes or whatever, you know? <laughs> what original Spider-Man was a woman. Yeah? yeah? Sorry? The original Spider-Man was a woman. Interesting. Yeah. And there've been, yeah, there've been some runs of like Spider-Girl comics and stuff like that. Right? I mean, not, not the Stan Lee one mm. before that. Oh, well, okay. I will have to check that out. <laughs> but yeah, the mythology piece, it adds some color, but it also... It's also like really obviously influenced by Buffy to the point of maybe being a little bit of a ripoff, yeah. and um, and it, the ending gets very sort of convoluted and mystical. Like the last chapter or so, you're kind of like, eh, it's all of a sudden became a fantasy novel, and it was quite grounded <laughs> before this. Um, but that said, it looks like there's going to be another one, and I would read it because okay. I motored through this thing. I've been having like real sort of attention span problem lately <laughs> i've been picking up books and starting them and not finishing them and this is the first book i've raced through in a while so uh, it was a lot of fun it's definitely uneven it's definitely like a an early attempt by this author but um but really enjoyable and lola is just a really fun character as much as she is insane <laughs> cool yeah. Would it be too much of a spoiler to ask, um, like, well, how do the powers actually manifest? Like, are they super strength? Are they mind powers? Oh, yeah. Good question. Um, they are basically straight up um, strength enhancement. It's basically okay. like a it's in the beginning. It seems very much like a Captain America situation, like everything hmm. about their physical strengths has been enhanced. Right. Um, they also start to discover later on that there are certain other things that they can do. Um, that are a little beyond something like that, a little more mystical. Mm -hmm. And they also both kind of discover independently that they can use like mental focus to enhance their powers. Things like they can heal quicker if they focus on it and things like oh, that. Okay. So it's, it's definitely got a mental component to it. Um, she definitely seemed to be more into developing the characters than the details of these powers. Um, okay. They seemed a little kind of peppered through as they were necessary for the story, which I mean, I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. It's better than just getting a long catalog of powers. But so it sounds like their strength, their um, like portfolio, if you will, it's like it's, it's just strength as a concept. Yeah, and there's like actually physical some power, stuff, power of will. There's actually some stuff early on where Lola is um, is complaining about the fact that she thought maybe that super intelligence would come along with these powers and she's kind of disappointed to find that she's mostly muscle and because <laughs> of that she goes through a couple of um a couple of attempts at like getting other people to work with her <laughs> and like be mm -hmm. the brains <laughs> which is kind of interesting both um in terms of like the character and her self-esteem and also just like yeah the, the way the power works it's very it's much more physical for her uh yeah but it was a lot of fun I would, I would very much recommend it. It's it's a quick read. It's like, I, I read it on my tablet, so I'm trying to estimate the size, and I can't, but probably a few hundred pages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
We've got I all guess, books this week. I guess that's what's on our mind grapes. I, yeah. I, I, I think that's the first or second time ever that we've done yeah. all books and all sort of in the same vein, like a very kind of fantasy theme here, too. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will drop all of those in the show notes for sure. And I guess we'll have to make up for it by doing some really stupid like comic book movie crap next week, right? It is still summer. Nice. <laughs> so this week on Class Z... Uh-huh. <laughs> and we've got two Americans. So I'm not going to even try today. Ah, nice. <laughs> I haven't said Z in a long time. <laughs> um, well, we've got some great ALA highlights for you. So uh, Sam and I were sadly both ALA left behind. Um, but uh, previous guest on the podcast, our good friend Jason Korf, is uh, joining us now from California. And uh, he was able to get to ALA, and he has some of the cool things he did to tell us about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was in um, Vegas, is that right? Yes, Las Vegas. All right. 110 degrees for the cool thing. <laughs> yeah, but you don't really leave the leave the the cool tunnels, labyrinths of the casinos, right? Uh, no, fortunately, there was a shuttle from my hotel to the Las Vegas Convention Center. Nice. There was a brief dash between the convention center and the Las Vegas hotel. <laughs> All right. So how, Bill, like, give us an idea of the scope of ALA. Like, do you have any idea of, of the numbers of people that were there? It's got to be in the I thousands, I saw the right? statistic, and it was gigantic, but I don't remember the exact number. <laughs> That's okay. We probably should have seen that beforehand. The building itself was enormous. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It occupied essentially the entire ALA convention center. All um, right. And sort of, and sorry, it was like three days? Uh, six. Oh, wow. I skipped out of the last day since it was largely closing ceremonies. Fair enough. But I was there for the other five. So what were some of the most interesting things that you saw? or heard, or whatever. <laughs> as far as interesting goes, I would have to give that to uh, the two speaker sessions I went to. The first being Stan Lee. <gasps> talking about oh, an up- you got to go yeah. Stan Lee. One of the funniest people I've ever heard speak. <laughs> Absolutely hysterical. Yeah. Uh, uh, he was there with... Um, it was someone from his comics company about the work they're publishing early next year about a Chinese American boy. Okay. It's called Zodiac, I think. I think I've heard of that actually. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, so what did he? Right. So I had to check that quickly. <laughs> so he was partially there to to like promote that, but did he also have other things? Yes, no. He had a Q and A with um, the guy there about the book and about okay. like, why they're publishing it, why it's important. But then he also just talked for a while about books and librarians and comics. It's kind of eclectic, but really fun. 
That's did awesome. he have a did he have a good sort of because when I go to most most of the library conference type things I go to there's like the obligatory libraries changed my life story did he have a good one I bet he had a good one oh yeah no, he's great <laughs> he kept saying things like I'm told I'm supposed to talk about this and then he would say something just write out like libraries are awesome librarians are great that kind of stuff yeah <laughs> yeah i did me, see a like, couple of gifts that obligation over with <laughs> and then go into things that he found more important or interesting mm-hmm. that's awesome that i mean hopefully still a long ways off but that, that may be one of the last opportunities to to see him speak publicly i'm so jealous that you got to do that yeah well, i i didn't know he was going to be there initially, actually. <laughs> so who was the other speaker you got to see? The other one was even more of a surprise. So I had planned to go to hear Lois Lowry speak about the Giver mm-hmm. movie. Right. But Which I've heard is, is going to be atrocious, but go on. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's my, largely because of this presentation kind of thing. Okay. Because... Lowry was there, but so was Jeff Bridges. <laughs> and I hadn't seen that until I read that little insert in the conference magazine. Yeah. So he was also pretty cool. <laughs> really? Very, the dude was cool? Is that what he was? <laughs> Shocker. Yeah, very, very laid back. I mean, a more more reserved wit than say Stanley's, but mm-hmm. also quite amusing. Mm-hmm. And he talked a lot with Lowry about the movie, of course, it's awesome you know, promo footage, that kind of thing, but also about just the power and influence of memory, what mm-hmm. memory does for us, uh, how it changes us, influences us. And how we influence our memories ourselves. And a little bit about um, photography and music. Since he uh, does both of those. Did he tie the discussion of memory into the idea of libraries? I mean, it sounds like a good fit. Yes, a little bit. Yeah. The focus was largely on um, just the giver as a, as a book in general. Hmm. And the concepts therein. So was he a fan before he decided to be involved in the movie? Oh, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, no, maybe, uh, it'll, maybe Bridges it'll be a and Lowry got along quite well. Hmm. well I've heard recently that uh, apparently Lowry has a whole bunch of sequels to The Giver that were written yes. way, way later, but uh, which One I haven't read. was recently published. Fourth one came out recently, I think. Yeah, but I've heard they're terrible. Uh, they kind of ruin everything. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is just like we we had a discussion about this um, about this with a bunch of my friends the other night, and because uh, if if I recall, the giver ends on kind of a question mark of of a note, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Some people see it as a very uplifting ending. Some people see it as a total downer ending, kind of depending on what you think happens next. And um, 
this is just the discussion. This is all hearsay. I haven't read the books, so uh, it's just, a, just an opinion. And if you have opinions, you know, please let us know. But um, apparently, Lowry actually wanted it to be read as an uplifting ending, and so then wrote these sequels so that it was. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those funny things. But they were also written much totally much later. fair. <laughs> it's her work, I guess. But, but uh, I, I but kind yeah. of, I said, well, it sort of compares it to something like. Um, there is a really great Garth Nix book called Sabriel. Yes. And uh, on its own, I think it's a great book. I think that it was originally published as a standalone. Um, but then there are these two sequels. And uh, they were written a little bit later, but like not nearly as good. And actually kind of annoying. And, you know, <laughs> I find them so anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm like maybe the only person. one. Uh, but yeah, I liked Deb Horson better than Lyriel. I thought Lyriel yeah. was really dumb. <laughs> I haven't read Lyriel recently at all. So besides the, the big speakers, which kind of sound like they were a highlight, what other types of sessions were there? Um, all sorts of things. So the first one I went to was about connecting youth with library services. Awesome. So in engaging youth find how to find out what they want and what they know, uh, like leveraging their own strengths in terms of building up library services, like hmm. utilizing maker spaces, for example, that was a big one there. And then having some sort of encouragement, like prizes or recognition even is to have these young people use library services to, um, engage with other people and create something that they can then use later on to say, look, I have this experience. I've done this kind of thing for future like, job interviews, for example. That's awesome. We talk a lot about teen services and sort of in these big, broad strokes, what they can do, but really that's, yeah, that's a really, um, like down to earth impact that they can have. <laughs> it's just, we gave you an opportunity to do this thing and now you can say you've done it. So the speakers there uh, were talking about the learning lab initiative hmm. and how they had a bunch of test libraries and other museums and other kind of institutions using this system to promote their, pardon me, Excuse me, <clears throat> from their project. Where, I, oh, go, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, um, I think that that's like, and it's really interesting to kind of look at the, the teen services, like asking from their point of view too, kind of getting the teens more involved in the process because um, Tamarack, who's been on the podcast before, has described teen services as hitting a moving target. You know, like you never know quite what's going to work and what worked last week is not right. going to work this week and that kind of thing. So yeah, getting them in on the ground floor can be really important too. I mean, you got to get those gung-ho kids, which sometimes are harder to find, but... Uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of the audience questions uh, dealt with that. Mm -hmm. Asking questions about libraries where the teen services were perhaps underfunded or underutilized. Yeah. Was how there to discussion... get them in there in the first place. Right. Yeah. Was there discussion of using sort of like community-led techniques in that context? 
Because it sounds a little like it would be a good fit. A little bit. This was mostly mm-hmm. focused on the first steps. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, you've got to have some kind of structure in place before you invite the teams yeah, to take the reins. Books and right? triggers. So, so getting that sort of mentor man- mentee link going on in the first place. Right. right. Yeah. Let's see. From that, I went to a discussion on rebranding readers of advisory as discovery services. So bringing Ooh, that, that. Bring that academic library discovery model to the public library. Mm-hmm. So. And there are some tools out there for that, but like you don't see them being used a lot. Yeah, they're not they're not very good. Yeah, like one of because I've been doing all my training at Vancouver Public and you know trying to get used to Biblio Commons and Horizon. When I'm used to coming at it from the Discovery Portal uh, kind of kind of way, like yeah, I think that that a public library readers advisory kind of thing would really benefit from that. So this one is really cool in terms of the speakers showing examples of things they have done like building displays designed around certain things and the big one was the anniversary of world war one right. or putting a name and face to library staff so having someone at a library do book reviews with like their picture and name on the library website. Mm. So someone can then follow this person's like, online bookshelf if they like a lot of the books that person's reading. That's a really clever plan. Because mm-hmm. there are things like, um, I'm thinking of my, my home branch, there's a staff picks wall. And that's usually one of the first places I browse because the staff mm-hmm. there have really good taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder one, if... Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I wonder if um, our reluctance to to do that has to do with our sort of, you know, you see that happening in the corporate world all the time, right? Employees being highlighted for whatever reason or being the face of their organization. And mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe it feels too corporate but it's such a good idea. In one case, the staff even wore name tags at the library. So it's sort of linking that from the online presence to the in-person presence. Yeah. Mm. Well, we all, I, I wear my badge, which has my name on it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of name tags. The uniforms, no. But name tags, absolutely. <laughs> I, know. I was done with uniforms after Catholic grade school. <laughs> I, my first job was at a supermarket where I actually had to wear a uh, tie every day. Mm. Like, button-down shirt, button-down white shirt and tie. But uh, because I was on cash and didn't have to deal with any rotating equipment, uh, I was able to wear whatever kind of tie I wanted. So <laughs> I had uh, I had one that was like green with snails on it. <laughs> so I like Excellent. went out of my Very way to cute. get weird, ugly ties. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> I wish I'd taken more notes in some of these. I went to one oh, on no worries. Library we just kind of wanted to get your impressions, and it sounds like there were a couple of really fascinating things going on. I poked into one on library architecture, hmm. um, one on, from the library research roundtable member presentations, since I'm part of that one. Nice. Just some poster sessions. 
One in particular I looked at was on multicultural programming. Oh, cool. Yeah. I've looked into a lot of that since I'm looking to some jobs that would deal with that. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, in terms of the posters, like were there, were there like an overwhelming number? Because I, I mean, I've never actually been to a conference that had poster presentations, but I, I feel like ALA with the number of people, there might just be so many. It was pretty great. So I have the poster session abstract manual with me here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Manual. Wow. So because there were so many, they had to print a booklet. Yeah. Putting the abstracts mm-hmm. from their research in there. Hmm. So the way it worked was across two days, I think it's Saturday and Sunday, so Friday and Saturday, Saturday and Sunday, there were, I want to say 20 slots for posters. And these would change throughout the day. So there were many, many more than 20 posters. Right. Um, and so at set times, the people presenting them would be there to talk with anyone who's interested. So I guess theoretically the spread of ALA, both like institution-wise and also geographically, is supposed to be pretty broad. Like, did you find that there was a pretty good cross-section of public, academic, et cetera, and like geographic broadness as well. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of librarians from, let's see, Japan, Korea. Wow. There were quite a few from some West African nations. I met a few of them at one of the unconferences. Hmm. Yeah, they were mostly focused on digital preservation. Oh, okay. Looking for resources and tools to preserve things since there's a lot of uncertainty about whether or not, say, local militias or warlords will come through and destroy things. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We talk about emergency response plans for our collections here, and we're always talking about, you know, natural disasters for the most part. But mm-hmm. when you're in a much more unstable region, it becomes a much more urgent concern. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I also spend like, a lot of time with the publishers. Oh yes, so okay, so I've heard tales of the like the convention floor, like with all the booths and oh, publisher swag nuts. and whatnot. Absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to bring an empty suitcase and fill nope, it up for the way no. home? Um, I only bought three books. I got four. <laughs> <laughs> so that's restraint um, because i took the uh, publishing children's literature class at uvc i stopped by groundwood press and i picked up a copy of the black book of colors which is really amazing so what so describe the concept of that the black book of colors so it's bilingual so English and Braille. So the whole book is black with white letters. And above that, on the left-hand side is the same thing in Braille. And the right-hand side of each spread is something tactile. So this page says, Thomas says that yellow tastes like mustard, but is as soft as a baby chick's feathers. So the right-hand side is feathers. 
run your hand across and feel that raised surface. Oh, cool. So it's it's like trying to describe color through tactile means, almost a synesthetic kind of description of color. Right. Cool. Yeah. It's very imaginative. Yeah, that's really neat. And you have the full Braille alphabet in the back of the book. Mm-hmm. So it can also be a learning experience. Hmm. It was first published in Mexico. Oh, cool. It must be. I mean, we always talk about it from the from the perspective of the librarians, right, as attendees being like, oh, my God, so many cool new books and free stuff and whatever. But if I was a publisher, I'd be excited to bring projects like that to something like ALA because I would know that the people I was going to show them to would kind of get them and, like, see how useful they could be. Mm-hmm. That would be exciting. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. So who was giving stuff. out the best free swag like of the, oh, of the publishers? That's that hard there? to say. I didn't get a lot of it because my space was very limited. Right. I did stop by Paizo's booth. Ah, oh, yeah. They published the Pathfinder role-playing game. Yeah, they do. There's <laughs> a bunch of novels based on the property. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I got a free copy of um, Pathfinder Tales novel Skinwalkers. Cool. I haven't read it yet, but I've promised a review to a friend's blog. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be quite terrible. <laughs> Those tie-in uh, books are... I think it's about werewolf pirates. Nice. <laughs> How could that possibly be terrible? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like an amazing time. Yeah, so Paizo actually is promoting gaming in libraries as like an after school program. Yeah, that's what I, I did a I did a presentation on yeah. during the interview recently about actually bringing gaming into the library. Hmm. So were there a lot of librarians hanging around the Paizo booth sort of seeing how they could incorporate that stuff? I mean there's also a library gaming round table. Mm-hmm. So they put on an event where um some companies brought their games gave away some games so um, we're playing pathfinder and all sorts of board games i played a really cool one called king of tokyo i love king of tokyo Tokyo. i love king of tokyo it's so fun (laughs) is that the one where you actually have to like uh knock shit down and yeah yeah, like the idea is you're all different um like movie monsters basically yeah yeah there's a new one coming out king of new york Oh, same company <laughs> maybe there'll be a sharknado as one of the options in that one <laughs> the sequel of that's coming out soon too I know I think it actually just came out <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, speaking of librarians and nerdy things we were definitely talking about sharknado 2 at work the other day <laughs> um, <laughs> so it sounds kind of overwhelming like did you find that you were able to sort of take in the big picture of it and decide what you wanted to see or was it just sort of a like well, yeah. let's so just wander before I even left I I downloaded the ALA 2014 app for my phone oh and that's useful into that I in uh, well online I selected all the things I thought I wanted to go to and they showed up on my phone nice go librarians yeah <laughs> it was really quite excellent so that had the uh, time slot, the day, the uh, event title, and then where it was located. You can sort of go in deeper to find out what it was about and whatnot. Very cool. It's a great idea. It was pretty good. Um, 
the sorting method wasn't very useful. The scroll through all the stuff, you couldn't really uh, differentiate very well between its section or between segments. But since I knew I wanted to go to already, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just wander around and go to random things and have fun too. Yeah. I also got a lot out of just talking to librarians during or after sessions. That was pretty cool too. I got a lot of fitness cards. Nice. People in your area? Um, some. <laughs> awesome. I, actually, I sat next to the person in charge of the hiring committee at somewhere I would like to work. And that was kind of fun. <laughs> All right. So did he, are you going to drop him an email about it? Oh, definitely. Since <laughs> it just opened up there. <laughs> Very cool. It won't say where. It'll be my secret. So I get in first. <laughs> <laughs> so you definitely recommend that uh, everyone should go to an ALA before they die kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really important, I feel, both in a professional sense... So building those connections, seeing what's out there, seeing what changes are coming. And as in the sense of a new librarian. So I haven't actually had my first like professional librarian job yet. I'm still looking. Mm -hmm. But just having that experience of being treated as a, a peer, like a fellow librarian, with valid and interesting opinions is very useful. That's great. That's so nice to hear that 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 attitude pervades at that sort of high level and that dense when, level of that many people. When you in the raise same your place. hand to answer a question or to comment on something at a session, no one's going to say like you can't talk. You don't have X Y Z. They take you at your word. It's it's great. Yeah, that's very much very much what the experience has been at the small local conferences I've been to. That's so great to know that that's the same at ALA. It's a, a friendly profession at those levels, too. It looks it's like it's in... Go ahead. It's also very gratifying to hear other librarians with vast amounts of experience ask mm -hmm. questions that I know the answer to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, it, it, because it changes so much, right? I can get a job because I'm fully qualified. <laughs> <laughs> Coming out of school, it's a real question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you're right. Yeah, seeing other people ask questions, seeing that that we all have a piece of the puzzle in terms of what the profession is supposed to do is, yeah, really cool. Huh. Well, so are you going to try and make be... it to Chicago next year then, Jason? I would like to. Yeah. Not quite as exotic although, a locale, although, I guess. Oh, um, Chicago is Oh, that's the midwinter. Here. San Francisco, San Francisco next year, right. Ooh, I would do that. Much that sounds weather. better. <laughs> that sounds a lot better. I'm actually outside ever. <laughs> well, I think on those lovely notes about uh, sort of being a great place for uh, new librarians to find their feet, uh, it's probably a nice place to kind of wrap up your thoughts, eh? All right. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. That, that gives us a picture. <laughs> You are welcome to come on board anytime. We miss you up here. <laughs> Thanks.
<laughs> that was so great. I miss yeah. talking to Jason. Yeah, me too. And it, it sounds, sounds like you had an incredible time. I know. Like, it makes me really, like, jealous and, and wonder when I'm going to get to go to my first ALA. I'm <laughs> very excited aim, at that prospect. We should aim to take the show on the road next year for San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we may have to do, uh, I don't know, like, some kind of donation drive for that, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> I know that was really, really fun. And, uh, and I think he made an excellent point there at the end, too, that no matter how big the conference, the librarian community is a very welcoming one and a very like, I don't know, balanced one in terms of acknowledging that great ideas come from everybody. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Uh, so what's going on this week? I guess uh, we do have some comments on the last episode that we put out, uh, which was the one where we talked about our our job hunting strategies and how the job hunt has been going for us and uh, how we've both been sort of successful in that arena as of late. So um, we had a really great comment on uh, on our blog from the book lenders this is from the actual website. Uh, and he thanked us for the episode and um, also talked a little bit about uh, he's from the UK and uh, talked a little bit about how it's interesting that it's different uh, how they do the job hunt in the UK a little bit. Um, So especially because, you know, the the public libraries in the UK are having a little bit of trouble right now. So um, so it was it it was interesting to to hear his thoughts. Uh, Yeah, no, I really appreciated that comment. And yeah, the fact that sort of there are some principles that apply across the board, but the structures and the situations are really different in different library communities for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, so Twitter, we're at uh, 536. So welcome aboard new followers if you're joining us <laughs> this week. Um, we also got a couple of great comments uh, from last week. So Lindsay uh, L.M. Krabenhoft on Twitter pointed out that there is a second R to the STAR acronym mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yep. that we talked about last week about sort of making sure that you hit all the right points when you're telling an anecdote in a job interview. And the last one is relevancy, which makes a lot of sense. You always want to tie every story that you tell back into how it will fit the job or how it answers the question, right? Yeah. So to review, the STAR acronym is uh, situation task, actions, results, and the last one is relevancy. Yeah, really good way to kind of tie it up. So thank Um, you very much, Lindsay. I'd completely mm -hmm. forgotten that one. Yeah, me too. (laughs) And I couldn't find it on a quick Google search. What do you know? (laughs) Um, Adina also jumped in (laughs) and uh, commented twice, actually, because she realized that we did talk a bit about trying your local library. But I mean, she makes an excellent point to reiterate it. If you don't have help through your library school or if you're a new graduate and you're kind of cut off from the community, walking into your local library and asking for an informational interview, asking for help is a great way to go for sure. Mm -hmm. And I got uh, I got flack for my uh, my snappy tweet back at her. (laughs) She got mad at me. (laughs) well when you've known each other as long as the two of you have (laughs) i guess that's true (laughs) and uh yeah not much else going on on our twitter feed uh michelle yule did say that she really enjoyed the job strategies episode and that was great to hear that it's sort of helping people out or at least giving a perspective Mm -hmm. and then there was a lot of aaron and mary talking to us about parks and rec because mary is finally watching it yay (laughs) another convert She's becoming one of those punk ass book jockeys. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know if there's that much else to talk about this week. We still have buttons on sale, um, and we're slowly, you know, getting a order after order. But we would like more. So if you Love want a button, more. they are still available. 
And if you were really interested in what I was talking about earlier and helping us fund a trip to ALA next year, um, you can also donate on the website. Uh, we do have a donation button and I promise you it works. So if you <laughs> are really enjoying the show and uh, would like us to get some more experiences to talk about, um, you can definitely throw some shekels our way. Indeed. And yeah, I guess all that's left this week, uh, besides directing you to sslibrarianship.com for those needs and all of your other ones related to the show, is to thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. Um, I have no new, I have no new Joko Cruise Crazy news this week. That was a difficult <laughs> sentence to say. No cruise uh, news. We, we are, we are ready. We are all set to go buy some <laughs> Harry Potter swag and then take it on a boat. Nice. <laughs> well, I guess then that is all for us this week, guys. Thank you so much for bearing with us. Uh, and uh, we would love to hear any comments. If you went to ALA mm -hmm. and you want to share some of your experiences, what did you like best? What did you think was most interesting? Um, do let us know. Uh, you can find all of our contact information on our website as well. And I guess that's it for us then. Uh, thanks, everyone. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. There was not a dry eye in the place. <laughs> so how did that actually... I'm hitting the record button again now. I want to tack this on to the end of the episode. How did that actually work? So he was... Lemony Snicket was giving a... He was offering a prize for like a librarian who had done sort of great service in their community and other librarians were nominating them? So this is the first year the prize has been a thing. And so Lemony Snicket and his sort of co-conspirator um, Daniel Handler right <laughs> yeah uh, put up some of his money for librarians based diversity and people sent nominations I think through the ALA site so we'll thing here for it and the prize includes a monetary sum as well as an odd symbolic object from Mr. Snicket's private stash. <laughs> <laughs> so the winner this year was Lawrence Copel, who uh, moved from New York City to New Orleans to provide library services to neighborhood children that didn't hmm. have this kind of thing since the New Orleans Katrina disaster was still going on. Right. And so she, despite having very little money and faced with a lot of guff from local administrators and police and whatnot, managed to provide, let's see, what is it, some thousands of books? Wow. So five plus thousand books, something like that, to these people. Like she even like, made a book cart out of her bicycle to reach children <laughs> who couldn't come to her book space. So she sort of physically embodied the library. Wow. Right. She even organized a parade, taking donations and raising money to uh, get the fees for that. Huh. 
So I take it uh, Snicket and or Handler were on on stage there to give the prize? Yes. Um, With assistance from Mo Willem to be Pigeon Books. Oh, right. Okay. Very cool. A little bit of a comedy duo there. (laughs) Pulling out not the real prize over and over again. (laughs) Like the t-shirt, the hat. Eventually it was this large porcelain dining platter with illustrated with uh, her on a book mobile thing. Oh, cute. So did they go through the stories of other nominees? No, just her. Oh, okay. Gotcha. This was a very long event. It came <laughs> at the end of a lot of awards. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And there must have been like hundreds of nominations for that too, because it was all over the internet before it was closed. I don't know how many nominations there were. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm glad you got to see that. It was fantastic. 